You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and then we also have our sermon notes available in our Google Drive folder if you'd like to access those later or follow along as we work through them today. Um, Last week we looked towards the end of chapter 6 and kind of saw um, again that idea that many of Jesus' disciples stopped following him after they heard that teaching on the bread of life, uh, whereas Peter reaffirmed his faith and said, look, we've assessed the situation. There's nowhere else to go. We're all in with you, Jesus. And so we talked a little bit about what it meant for Jesus to have the words of life, uh, as Peter talks about. And so we said last week that regularly meditating on the life-giving words of Jesus will help us cling to him rather than wander from him when we are tempted during times of confusion and difficulty. That there's going to be times in our life where we do get confused about things that we're seeing in Scripture, especially if we're trying to measure it with things that we see in today's culture. There's going to be times where we're going through difficulties and less than desirable circumstances that may cause us to question God's goodness. And it's in those times where we will make a decision to either run back to Jesus or to wander from Jesus. And so I told you last week, if we will uh, really cling to the words of life, it will help us during those times to make the right decision. And that's to run back to Jesus versus wandering from him. We talked a little bit last week about why people abandon or change their faith. We talked about uh, kind of a dissatisfaction with God and the circumstances that he gives to us, that we're, we're discontent with how he has chosen to work out our life. We talked about a discontentment with uh, the church, particularly Christians in general. Uh, so there's a desire to leave Christianity because the church isn't measuring up to what the church should be, or Christians aren't measuring up to what Christians should be. We also talked about the, the uh, world's attractions and that sometimes people grow weary about living the Christian life and saying no to some of the temptations of the world, and so they yield to the temptations of the world. Didn't know it at the time, but it's a timely sermon in light of uh, an individual who, who I used to follow and, and read, um, a guy named Joshua Harris, who was a pastor of a church in Maryland, written several different books. Um, over the past couple of weeks, he and his wife have mutually decided to divorce uh, but then even this week on his uh, social media came out and said that, that he's no longer claiming to be a Christian, um, that he has um, had a difficult time reconciling some of the things that he feels and believes with what Scripture has to say. And so he is um, using the words that he has taught for many years and, and now describing himself as an apostate, as somebody who has left the Christian faith, which, I mean, just blows my mind how you can pastor a church and teach the word for for a decade plus, and then wander in such a way to where you say, I, I, don't, I don't believe it anymore. I don't, I don't yield to it anymore. Um, maybe the one thing that I appreciated most in an interview that I read with him uh, that he did a couple of weeks ago before he actually came out and said this, he, he told an individual that he was wrestling with some things regarding his faith and things that he had taught previously. And so the individual asked him about kind of re- uh, re, rebuilding the Christian faith for himself or whatnot. And he basically said, look, I know the Bible too well. I can't twist it to believe what I'm currently believing right now. And so ultimately I have to, if I go this direction, I have to just abandon the whole thing, which, which I do appreciate in the sense that 
what he's recognizing is that I can't believe these things and follow Jesus too. That, that I either have to walk away to make these choices and decisions or I have to run back that I can't have both. And that's absolutely true. Now, he's making the wrong decision right now, and that's to say, hey, I'm going to yield myself to these things. I'm going to yield myself to this new belief system, and I'm going to leave Jesus behind. But he at least recognizes the fact that you can't have both. You can't, you can't twist and distort Jesus to meet your standards of how you want to live, right? We talked about words of life last week to hang, our, hang ourselves upon, to, to anchor ourselves to. Uh, in times of confusion and difficulty so that we don't wander. We said that our circumstances are tied to his good sovereignty, that God's working good for his children. Why would we leave when we can trust that he's working good? That our provisions and lack of provisions in life are tied to a great father who gives the right gifts, that he is the perfect father who knows exactly what we need and exactly what we don't need. That our identity is tied to what our creator says about us, that we don't have to try to find ourselves in our work or in our relationships or in our family. We don't find value based on how good of a dad we are or how good of a husband we are. That instead, we are who our creator tells us that we are as his creation. Our salvation is tied to the righteousness of Christ and not our performance. Our responsibility to obey is tied to good commands that protect us. So even when we talk about the Christian life and the do's and the don'ts, the the commands that are given to us are good commands that are meant to protect us. Number six, we said that our freedom from fear, worry, and anxiety is tied to a God who never leaves us. And then lastly, we said that our greatest enjoyment of life is tied to things coming rather than things present, meaning this isn't the best that we get as Christians, that the best is still yet to come when we enter into eternity with our Heavenly Father, with Christ, in a state of perfection, that the best this world has to offer will still pass away and will still pale in comparison to what is to come. So we do not forfeit the future for the here and now because anything that we could gain from this world in the here and now will pale in comparison to what is to come. All right, so that moves us into chapter seven. We've already read it today once, and so we're not gonna take the time to read it all in one big chunk again. We are gonna work through it together today, but just to quickly summarize what we saw in chapter seven, it starts with Jesus uh, being in Galilee and not going towards Jerusalem because the Jews are seeking to kill him. The Feast of Booths pops up, and so his brothers who don't believe in him are trying to get him to go. Jesus says, I'm not gonna go according to your timing. I'm gonna go according to mine. Um, eventually he makes his way to the feast where people are wondering where he is at because they are wanting to arrest him and to kill him. He begins to preach uh, there and teach there, and they are blown away by his lack of education and the truth that he is saying. And so they're very confused as to how he can teach with such authority when he hasn't been trained according to their systems and schools. He then clarifies where his content of his message comes from and how he has the content that he possesses. He then brings up the issue of healing on the Sabbath day, something we talked about a couple of chapters ago. He reminds them about why it's ludicrous for them to think that he is guilty of breaking God's law when they are doing very similar things, and we'll talk about that today. This leads some people to say, is this the Christ? Because they're not arresting him, they're not killing him, even though we know they want to. But then they kind of delve into this confusion about can he be who he says he is when he doesn't uh, come from the, the place that we think he should come from, right? And so they're confused about his origins. Uh, we hear that some start to believe because they realize what else would the Messiah do beyond, beyond what Jesus is doing? 
And this incites the Pharisees to try to arrest him once again, leaving Jesus to tell them how urgent it is for them to believe in him, that their time is short. He then reiterates the idea of him being the the living water that can satisfy all needs. The people come back who were supposed to arrest him and and tell the, the, the Pharisees that they won't or they can't because they're blown away by Jesus's teaching, which infuriates the Pharisees as to how they too could be deceived, these people that they sent to arrest him. That leaves at the very end Nicodemus saying, hey, I think we should give him a fair trial, and that only makes the Pharisees more angry. All right, so we're going to walk through uh, what some of this means today here in chapter 7, try to give you some points of application for your own life as well. Our summary sentence for today, Jesus's identity, and that's a topic uh, within this passage. Who is Jesus? A lot of different opinions in this passage. His identity, which is best seen through his works or his words and his works, right? He, he says some things about himself and he does some things to validate what he says about himself. So Jesus's identity seen through his words and his works should drive us to trust him and his timetables fully, which will allow us to find full satisfaction in him in a way that spills over into the lives of those around us. So we want to we want to get his identity right. We're going to see through his words and his works who he claims to be. If he truly is the son of God, that should drive us to trust him and to ultimately trust his timetable for when he does things. And if we will do that, we will find full satisfaction in him, but not just for ourselves, but in a way that spills over into the lives of those around us. For our kids, my belief about Jesus should affect how I treat other people in my life. All right, as you're copying that down for those that are taking notes, um, this passage centers on the the Feast of Booths, which you can learn more about if you want to from Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, This feast was mandated by God in the Old Testament for the Israelite people. He gives those mandates in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 through 44 particularly. This was a week-long time of celebration for God's people. Uh, They are celebrating the provision that God gave them during the the Exodus, particularly that that time in the wilderness. So much so, to celebrate it, they are asked to basically live in tents throughout the week to remind themselves of how God provided for them when they didn't have their their um, their homes that they were currently living in in their city. So they, they didn't have a specific place to live. They're wandering around the wilderness. And so for a week, they would live in these tents to remind themselves of what their ancestors had done. And so they would celebrate. And it was a, a, a fantastic week of celebration, something that you look forward to. Uh, think Christmas, but, but week long. I mean, I mean just a, a great time of celebration for them, something that they would have looked forward to. And part of the rituals that they underwent during that week was to take water from a specific pool and to pour it over one of the altars at the temple. Um, And it was a huge point of celebration because it was meant to remind them of how God had provided water in the wilderness through the rock, right? Why is that important? Because Jesus chooses this setting to reemphasize himself as the living water, right? Because they are in a mindset of celebrating God's provision of water during this feast. So they're already thinking in terms of how God has provided water when we needed water desperately. When our people were thirsty, God came through in a miraculous way and gave us water. It's in that setting that Jesus says, I'm the better water. 
right? Like I'm the water that can satisfy greater than what you were actually celebrating from the Old Testament, okay? There's also some confusion here about whether or not Jesus lies to his brothers when they ask him to go up to this feast and he tells them that he's not going to. But I think if we really look at what's going on here, what Jesus does say is that he is not going to go with them, that it's not the proper time for him to go, and it's not the proper way for him to go. And so what's presented to him is that he is supposed to go with a lot of fan and glory with the intent of revealing himself as the Messiah. That's what his brothers are trying to incite him to do. And Jesus says, that's not what's going to happen. It's not my time to do this. And so he tells them to go ahead, to go without him, that he's not going with them. He eventually comes in secret, kind of incognito. He's not with his family. He's not with his disciples. It allows him to slip in, to slip past those who are seeking to kill him and to arrest him. Um, And he's able to put himself in position to teach in a way where they aren't going to seize him. So it's very calculated in how Jesus approaches this passage. Okay, let's jump right in and look at some uh, major points for us to take away from John chapter 7. Number one, don't mistake a lack of action by God as a lack of movement overall. Don't mistake a lack of action by God as a lack of movement overall. For kids, God is always on the move, even when we don't see it. So it says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to him, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The brothers don't believe at this point. Maybe they are looking for an opportunity to believe in that they, like some of the other Jews are saying, show us a sign, show us a miracle, and then we will believe. And so they're trying to incite him to go and to reveal himself as the Messiah, which they know will either validate him or probably get him killed. Right? And so they're not believers here. And so they are kind of dictating to Jesus what they think the timetable should look like. This is what you should be doing. Like anybody who wants to reveal himself doesn't do it in secret, but does it openly or does it publicly. And so they feel like his teachings and his miracles are being wasted on this minority. And it really needs to come to the majority public. It needs to be seen and known and presented. And people need to be able to make an assessment. Maybe even particularly the the, the Jewish religious leaders. Maybe the brothers are waiting on some type of validation from the Pharisees that says, this is the Messiah, you should believe in him, right? We look into this passage, and I think it's a good reminder to us that we should not mistake a lack of action by God as a lack of movement overall. Number one, be careful not to schedule God's next steps according to your timetable. The siblings believe they know best about him gaining attention, Their timetable is off, though, because their purpose is off. And as I was thinking about that, I was was thinking, too, like probably the the majority of the time when I'm frustrated with God's timetable in my life, it's probably due to my purposes being off as well, right? That that the, the, the brothers had a different purpose in mind. We want you to go be the Messiah right now if you're the Messiah. Jesus says, it's not my time. That's not my timetable. That's not my purpose right now. So they are potentially frustrated, uh, discontent with how Jesus is choosing to, to carry on his life. 
because it doesn't match their timetable, doesn't match their purposes. It's a good reminder to us as believers, so the brothers are not believers, but for us as believers, we should certainly not mistake a lack of action by God as a lack of movement by God, that we shouldn't schedule God's next steps according to our timetable. Number two, be mindful of a divine timetable that includes more than just you. Be mindful of a divine timetable that includes more than just you. So it's a, it's a sign of immaturity in our faith. If we are expecting something from God, waiting on something from God, praying for something from God, something that we believe is very good, very right, very appropriate for us, and we are having to wait and wait and wait. It's an immature aspect of our faith if we think that God's just not doing anything. Because even though Jesus isn't doing what the brothers want him to do, he is certainly at work, right? He's moving all around Galilee, right? He's not public about it, but he's certainly moving and waiting and anticipating the right timetable, right? Here's a couple of passages from the New Testament that help us see that everything that happens in relationship to the gospel, Jesus coming, our salvation, it's all very calculated at the right time for the right purpose. Galatians chapter four, verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons right? When does the gospel come forth? When does Jesus come? When do, when do we get clarity about how salvation really works and who the perfect lamb is? When the fullness of time had come. Romans chapter 5 verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The right time, the fullness of time. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 6 who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That passage lets us know that Jesus is coming back at the proper time, at the right time. So we as believers could sit back and wonder, like, why is God waiting? Why is he not doing anything? Why is he letting the world go the direction that it's going? And think that there is absolutely no movement happening because we don't see a particular action that we're waiting upon. What we see in this passage is that God is always moving and that the particular actions that sometimes we are waiting upon will happen at the proper time. Right? So, so what does that mean for you individually? Well, that means every job that you're waiting for, every baby that you're hoping for, every marriage that you're uh, longing for, right? Anything that we want according to our timetable needs to be submitted to his. And we can trust fully that he will give as it is good for us and he will continue to withhold as long as it is good for us as well. Right? Think about the children of Israel who had to sit in Egypt for 400 years in slavery before they could even make the exodus to the promised land. That feels like 400 wasted years, right? Like, like why couldn't we go at the 200-year mark? Why couldn't we go at the 250-year mark? Why not at the 300-year mark? Why not at the 399-year mark? 
Well, what did God tell Abraham? He says, you're going to have to wait for 400 years because I'm waiting for the sins of the people in the promised land to, to balloon to a point to where it makes sense for you to go in and kill them and to judge them because they will have been given every opportunity to make things right. 400 plus years of long suffering and patience by God for the people in the promised land all the while, Israel's having to wait in Egypt going, why so long? Why so long? Why so long? Where's God? Why is he not moving? Why is he not acting? All the while, God's acting the entire time. He's waiting for the right fullness of time to bring the children of Israel out to bring judgment on a group of people after 400 years of sin. It translates for us in our life to think that, man, how foolish for us to think that God's not moving in our life just because we don't see a particular action happening. Let's don't, let's don't box him in or try to schedule his next steps. Let's be faithful to wait for his perfect timing. Don't grow frustrated when God doesn't work off your timetable. He's definitely moving in greater ways than you planned. Following Jesus means we lay aside both our purposes and our timetables in order to trust his. His delayed movement is based on his understanding of a right timetable, not out of fear of being put to death. That's for particularly what's happening here in John chapter seven. It's not that Jesus is trying to hide and he's scared and doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to die until it's the right time. He doesn't want to die until the fullness of time has come. And so he withholds himself from being in a position to be arrested, to be crucified. We saw in chapter six, he already knows who's going to betray him. He's talking to his disciples and he says, you guys are going to leave? Peter says, no, we've determined there's nowhere else to go. Jesus doesn't grab Peter and say, that a boy, way to go, buddy. He says, man, that's great, but one of you is still going to betray me. Even though you're not leaving yet, you're still going to leave later. He's not trying to hide. He's not scared. He's waiting for the right time. We see this throughout this passage that evil can't move when it wants to, right? This whole passage, evil's wanting to do things and it's held at bay. It won't be allowed to do anything until the right time comes. Just look at a couple of verses here. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, verse one. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Evil wants to kill him. It can't find him. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? We wanna kill him. We can't find him. Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this man whom they seek to kill? They're trying to kill him, and even people recognize they're failing in their efforts. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I would love to know what was keeping them from doing this. We're not told. Was it fear that the people would revolt because some of them were believing? I don't know. It just says that they were there. They intended to arrest him, but not one of them laid a hand on him. And the only reason we're given is because the hour had not yet come. Not because some human did something grand to protect Jesus. That there's a sovereign piece here that says the reason they couldn't lay a hand on him is because it wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right time. You look in uh, verse 32. Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. The chief priests and Pharisees sent out officers to arrest him. Try to get him arrested, but we flip down to, 40, 40, to verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. 
It didn't even take force to hold these guys back. It just took conviction, right? One commentator said, these guys went to arrest Jesus and Jesus arrested them with his words. They fully intended to bring him back and kill him. They come back empty-handed and they said, we're not taking him. Like, we've never heard teaching like that before, right? Evil can't move until the right time comes. Don't mistake a lack of action by God as a lack of movement overall. Number two, don't forget that the world is evil and sin needs to be addressed. Don't forget that the world is evil and sin needs to be addressed. Back there at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus tells his brothers, my time's not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Here Jesus talks about the need to address an evil world and to address sin within the evil world. That he testifies about it. And that by testifying about it, it incites hatred towards him. It incites hatred towards him. For our kids, Christians are sometimes hated by the world because it is evil. Number one, while we should expect the world to sin, we should also be ready to address it. Right? So sometimes when we talk about believers and non-believers, there are certain things that we say, well, an unbeliever should be doing that because they don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. We should expect them to live that way. A, A believer, we should expect to live differently a lot of times because the Holy Spirit is indwelling them. But even though we would say that the world should be evil and should be expected to live in an evil manner, we should also be ready to address it. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Right? Bring them to light. Don't take part in them. Expose them. And by doing it, we should expect hostility. Right? So if Jesus was hated for addressing sin within the world, we too have a responsibility to do the same. We should expect similar results. And it's very consistent with what Jesus already laid out in John chapter three. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed, right? Same word there about the the exposure of, of sin and evil. So we play a role as light, as extensions of Christ's light to bring light into this world. And we should anticipate that when we are rejected, we are rejected because people love darkness rather than light. And people love their evil deeds rather than submission to Jesus. And we should anticipate being hated in return as well. Number two, how we address sin will either distort or clarify the gospel to others. How we address sin will either distort or clarify the gospel to others. We distort the gospel if we ignore sin or if we expose it judgmentally without an element of hope to it, right? So we don't, we don't expose sin by judging people for their actions, right? We appeal to people with the hope of forgiveness, 
right? The, the Pharisees were very good at the judgmental piece of addressing people's sinful behavior, calling it out, recognizing it, identifying it. What Jesus was very clear about, he brings sin to light as well, right? He brought the sin of the, good, of the bad Samaritan woman, right? He makes her fully aware that he knows exactly what it is that she's been doing. But what does he offer her? He offers her living water, right? He identifies the fact that, hey, what you're doing is wrong. It's sinful. But here's the right way to find satisfaction. You've been seeking it this way. Here's the right way. Here's the appropriate way, right? He brings this hope of forgiveness and change to the picture. So we distort the gospel if we just ignore sin or if we come into it from a judgmental standpoint without the hope of forgiveness, Number three, it's important that we not react with hate when sin is addressed in our lives either. Jesus sets the stage for how we should see the Jewish people in this passage. Up front in this passage, he says, what? I am hated by an evil world, right? The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. What do we see then unfold in the rest of this chapter? We see a bunch of people that hate him right? Why do they hate him? Because he is trying to expose their evil. He's trying to expose their evil, and he's hated for it. It's a reminder to us, being that we are not Jesus, we are not perfect, there is times where we too need to be exposed, even as believers, when we are falling into sin, that we not react in a similar way of hatred to an individual or to the truth that that individual brings that needs to be corrected in our life. We should expect to be hated by the world. The world's evil, right? It, it, it grieved my heart to read Joshua Harris talking about some of the things that have led him to think differently. And some of it is in response to people attacking some of his previous teachings and not liking those previous teachings. So now he's reevaluated whether those teachings are true, whether he even holds to them. And now he's coming out and apologizing to people who he, who he called to live a life of purity in regards to their relationships to each other, to wait until marriage to enjoy certain things, to, to, to wait to marriage with a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. Now he's just come out and said, I'm apologizing to everybody that I ever taught something like that. Apologizing to the LGBT community saying, I was wrong to discount your choices and decisions. That your choices and decisions are good and right and appropriate. How dare me tell you not to live that way. Why is he reacting that way? Well, I think because he got a little pushback and some hatred given towards him. And, and as I said, oh, I need to, I need to step back and change, change things. I don't want to be hated, right? And he's even said he stepped down from his church to go pursue seminary. And it was there at seminary where he began to interact with just the common people and begin to develop friendships and relationships that he starts getting all this feedback and it starts to change his belief system. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a strong reminder to us that if a pastor of a, of a Bible-believing church, this isn't just a pastor of a mega church that we would say, mm, theology's weird about that church anyways, of a Bible-believing church that is very consistent with a lot of our teachings, God can pastor that church and then put himself in a position where he's detached and unanchored from a body of believers— begins to allow others to influence his perspectives about Scripture, 
right? And I hear horror stories about people that go off to liberal type universities and seminaries where they are trying to study scripture in that context. Most of the times they come out with a distorted, inappropriate, liberal view and their, their, their belief system is all out of whack because of it, right? And that's exactly what's happened to him. He's confused and he's distorted and, and he's pushing back against the hatred that he was receiving and trying to be accepted now by an evil world. Don't forget that the world is evil and that sin needs to be addressed. Number three, don't reject or abandon Jesus for silly reasons. Don't reject or abandon Jesus for silly reasons. I mean, you read this chapter, and if you begin to pull out and dissect, why are they not believing in him? Why are they not yielding to his teaching? The excuses that are given are such minor details in comparison to the teachings that he's, that he's giving to them. For our kids, Jesus was either crazy, a liar, or God. Look at some of the things here. The minor details and issues should not overshadow the obvious. Minor details and issues should not overshadow the obvious. What are some things they're concerned about? Well, first they're concerned about his credentials. All right, so back to the text. His brothers had gone up to the feast. He goes in private, not publicly, and he begins to teach. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he's never studied? They couldn't refute his teachings, so instead they questioned whether he was right to say the true things that he said. Right? They, they can't attack his teachings. They can't say that what you're saying is not true. So instead they say, you don't have the right to say the true things that you're saying. It's exactly what they were doing when we saw in the temple when he's rebuking them for the, the way they had turned it into a, into a money market type situation, right? They basically said, not that you're wrong, but that you don't have the right to tell us because you're not in a position to be able to tell us this, right? And so instead of receiving the criticism, Instead of repenting out of conviction about the criticism, they instead want to argue and say, you don't get to say these things because you didn't study in our schools. You didn't study under our teachers, and so therefore you don't have the right to say these things to us. They were concerned about his credentials. They missed the point that he was right and were caught up on whether he had the right to be right. They do this again in the book of Acts with Peter. Listen to this narrative. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that is a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more anyone in this name. I mean, look at that. All the excuses have been removed. The only thing that's still there is that Peter is an uneducated man, that John is an uneducated man. These are fishermen doing these astonishing things, healing people in an astonishing way. There's nothing to say in opposition, but they're uneducated. So let's just tell them to be quiet. 
versus listening and yielding to what it is that they're saying, right? They're concerned about credentials. Number two, or sorry, concerned about his credentials. They're concerned about his lineage and birth details, right? So in verse 27, verse 41 and 42, and in verse 50 and 52, they keep bringing up confusion about the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. The Messiah is not supposed to come from Galilee. The Messiah is supposed to be of the lineage of David. So therefore, Jesus can't be the Messiah. They make excuses rather than seeking clarification, right? Because he is from the line of David and he is born in Bethlehem. And that could have been easily solved through a simple conversation, but they are not interested in getting the clarification. They are interested in making an excuse. Have you ever sat in a collaborative type meeting where there's some type of resolution trying to be figured out and somebody may have a great resolution to this problem, but you have one individual in the group that just keeps finding a reason for why this won't work, right? And to the point where you're finally like, these are silly things that you're bringing up. Like, clearly, you just don't want to do it, and you're trying to find a logical reason not to. That's exactly what's happening here. They don't want to follow Jesus. They don't want to believe in Jesus, but that, that won't work to just say that. Right? You, can't, you can't typically sit in a business meeting where you're supposed to be coming up with a solution and simply come up with the idea of, well, I just don't want to do it that way. Right? Like you have to have some type of educated, logical reason not to do it that way if the rest of the team is saying, let's do it this way. So they're saying, his credentials are off. Was he really born in Bethlehem? I don't think, he's, I don't think he fulfills the prophecy like he's supposed to. Right? They're also concerned about who else was believing and not believing. Right? Well, he can't be the Messiah, the Pharisees say, because verse 48, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Basically, they said, you know who listens to this guy? People who are uneducated, right? People that know the Bible, people that know God's word, they're not listening to this guy. The Pharisees, we're not listening to this guy. We don't believe this guy. It's the people who are uneducated who don't know anything that are listening to him. So their basis for believing and not believing is based off of who else is believing and not believing, right? These minor details that are holding them back from submitting to their king. Number two, embrace the improbable when the impossible is ruled out. Embrace the improbable when the impossible is ruled out. I feel like that's where this one group is in verse 31. Many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Right? Like, like they're basically saying, he doesn't, he doesn't do it all for me. Right? Like, like I, was, I was thinking he might be different than this. But if he's not the Messiah, then he's a liar. Right? Like, like he's saying that he's the Messiah. So he either is or he isn't. And if he's not, then he's a liar. And I just need to walk away from him. But man, there's so many things that he's doing that, that keep me from walking away from him. And he certainly doesn't seem crazy, right? Like he's not, he's, not, he's not telling lies that he doesn't know are lies. And so they basically kind of come back to this point of, man, I can't imagine the real Messiah showing up and doing anything more than what Jesus is doing. Therefore, it seems improbable because I had a different picture of what he was supposed to be but it's impossible for him to be anything but the Messiah 
because the Messiah would not do anything more than Jesus is doing, right? And so they begin to yield themselves to him because they don't know what else to do besides yield themselves to him. When they look past the minor details, they begin to examine his character. You've got some who are saying he's good, others who say he's a deceiver, others who say he's a demon or has a demon. But Jesus challenges them to look at his message, right? He says, you want to know if I'm true, if I should be believed and followed? He says, look at the content of my message when they address his credentials. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus is basically saying their lack of belief was due to an unwillingness to submit to the message of God's will. And in fact, the way that Jesus presents this, that if he's truly from God, he would be seeking God's glory and not his own, which is exactly what he's doing, that if you seek your own glory, you're speaking from your own authority, he's calling the Jews out because he's already said that that's what they do. In John chapter five, we saw a couple weeks ago in verse 44, he talks about that seeking your own glory, right? Look what he says in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus is like, you want to talk about who's the false teacher here? It's you with the credentials because you're teaching and constructing things for your own glory, not for his. Number three, our belief about Jesus's identity should either drive us to him or from him. Don't reject him or abandon him for silly reasons. Who he is, his identity should either drive us to him or if we start to believe something differently about him, it might drive us away from him. We don't leave unless our belief changes about his identity, particularly his resurrection. Yesterday, we're, uh, Daniel and I were talking about uh, Joshua Harris's situation and then Lauren and I were talking about Joshua Harris's situation. I was encouraged because both of them in our conversation said, man, I'd love to sit with him and find out what he believes about the resurrection now because that should really be the only reason that he's walking away from the faith, right? Not because his sexual desires have changed, not because he moved into a sinful culture where, where he's exposed to things outside of the conservative Bible community that he had grown up into, right? That's what's driving the change is that he, he pitched his tent towards Sodom, right? And, and he engulfed himself in a sinful culture, didn't really, to my knowledge, get himself into a body of believers after stepping away from his church and allowed his mind to be perverted by the things of this world. What I would love to see is an interview where he comes out and says, I don't believe in the historical Jesus or the resurrection anymore. I still would grieve for him, but it at least would make some type of logical sense that he's changed his understanding of who Jesus is. Why would I follow somebody who's dead? If he believes that Jesus is dead, he should walk away. He should walk away if that's what he believes. But if he hasn't reconciled what he believes about the resurrection, he has no reason to walk away from Jesus, right? His identity should drive us to run to him even when we're confused, even when we don't understand. We don't run away from him, we run to him. Number four, don't judge others for things you approve in yourself. Don't judge others for things you approve in yourself. Jesus picks a fight here because the the Pharisees don't even bring this up again, but he brings up the Sabbath healing 
and says, remember, you guys are still angry with me about healing on the Sabbath. He says, Jesus answered them, I did one work, verse 21, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. He's reminding them of the argument. You're, you're discounting me because you think I do work on the Sabbath. Therefore, I can't be the Messiah because I break Moses' law. He says, you guys do work on the Sabbath according to your definition because you circumcise boys on the Sabbath if it's the, if it's the, the day of the week that they're supposed to be circumcised after their birth. You won't let them go an extra day because that would mean breaking the law. So you, in light of that, will do work according to your definition in order for the good of this person's needs to be met. He says, how much more have I done that by healing an individual? He says, we're doing the same thing. You're okay with doing it yourself. You're very judgmental towards somebody else who does something similar. I'm guilty of this all the time because it's easier to justify your own actions and to judge others' actions. It's just how, how our sinful flesh works, right? Somebody could be doing the exact same thing that I'm doing and I can make it out to be the worst thing possible and I can even pervert it to look like I'm doing the best thing possible. I can be that manipulative in my mind that what you're doing is so bad, but what I'm doing is so good and so right and should be commended and acknowledged and you should be punished for it, right? They reject him for doing the very things, very things they are doing. It's a reminder to us that we can't be the standard of right and wrong that we use for others. It's easier to justify your own actions and judge others' actions. Number two, we should measure our actions and others' actions in relationship to what God's word says versus tradition and preference. Because as we said when we looked at the healing on the Sabbath the first time, they had concocted these rules about what work is. You look at the Mosaic law, Jesus wasn't even close to breaking the law by healing a man on the Sabbath. He was only guilty of breaking their laws. Far too often, we are judgmental towards people because they break our laws, our standards of what's right and wrong versus God's, right? It's very right to address the evil works of this world when it's evil because they are breaking God's laws, not when they're breaking our preferences and our traditions and what we think is right and wrong. We need to measure our actions and others' actions based on what God's word says, not tradition and preferences. Their hatred is tied to him breaking their laws, not God's. They aren't even willing to follow their laws to prosecute him, right? Nicodemus says, our law says we're supposed to give him a fair trial. They don't want to even follow their laws when it comes to trying Jesus. They just want to kill him. Number five, don't wait to believe because time is short. For our kids, believe in Jesus today if you haven't already. Jesus knows this, this time right here is coming to an end, and so he warns them, Verse 33, Jesus said to them, I'll be with you a little longer and then I'm gonna go into him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. He warns them of the urgency to believe today. They're confused and like, what's he gonna do? Go to where the other Jewish people have been dispersed through um, the captivity and never came back here? Is he gonna go teach those that, that live in Greece now? They misunderstood that he was leaving this earth to go back to his father. 
Number one, Jesus warns us not to delay in our response. There's an urgency. We won't always have the opportunity to repent. Jesus warns us not to delay. But lest we lose sight of what chapter 6 says, Jesus will always gather his own. Nobody's getting lost and nobody's getting left out. Even the brothers who don't believe at the beginning of this chapter, who keep not believing throughout the rest of Jesus's earthly life and don't start believing until after the resurrection, they're found in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. It says the early church is gathered, they're praying. Who are they with? His brothers, right? Even these guys in the last hour get it and believe in their brother Jesus as the Messiah. He always gathers his own. And then lastly, number six, don't neglect to let your salvation spill over into others. Don't neglect to let your salvation spill over into others. Jesus closes out by talking about himself as the water of life. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Man, and I would love to think that this is happening when they are doing their water ceremony because they would bring these pitchers of water. On the last day, they would walk around the altar seven times, just like they walked around the... the um, uh, walls of Jericho, then they would pour all this water out and they would celebrate. And it was a big deal. From what I was reading, it was a big deal if you could see the water before it was poured out. So the, the, the priest and these guys would, would hold the water up and the crowd would cheer louder and louder and louder to lift it higher and higher and higher so that the people in the back could see it, right? I love to think that Jesus is talking when this is happening and he's screaming at the top of his lungs that he is the water, He's the water to look to now. Not this Old Testament picture, this Old Testament shadow, but that he's the one that gives ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment now. Right? So, so put yourself in that setting where, where they, are, they are cheering about the old and failing to see the new. Right? And Jesus screaming at the top of his lungs because we just read it, and I read it in my, my calm Sunday morning voice, right? That... Um, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Man, think about him screaming that at the top of his lungs, like, get it, like I'm not gonna be here much longer, right? Now this he said about the spirit, whom those he be- who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Two things to see here in closing. Number one, he promises to meet all of our true needs in a way that ultimately satisfies. He promises to meet all of our true needs in a way that ultimately satisfies. We won't take the time to read this because of time, but Isaiah chapter 55, verses one through seven, it's almost like Jesus is quoting this passage in his own words because you have the elements of the, the water, the thirst, and even the urgency of doing this now before time is out. So Isaiah 55, 1 through 7, if you want to read that on your own time. He promises to meet all the true needs in a way that ultimately satisfies. But number two, he satisfies in such a way that our satisfaction in him is meant to spill into the lives of others. That's the idea that he gives here at the very end. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So if anyone's thirsty, come and drink from me. Whoever believes in me and drinks from me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We talked about this 
when we did our series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and understanding the, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and what does our church believe, right? What I told you then and I'll tell you again today, don't think that the Holy Spirit wasn't working and moving in a lot of the same ways in the Old Testament as he was today. People didn't get saved without the, without the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, right? Abraham didn't keep believing for all those years without the Holy Spirit keeping him believing, okay? So the Holy Spirit wasn't absent from the Old Testament. Holy Spirit was doing a lot of the same things in the Old Testament as he does in the New Testament, especially in regards to salvation, So when we talked about the whole new birth, Holy Spirit has to bring about conviction, has to bring about that change for us to even want to believe. That's not a New Testament thing. That's that's an all-the-time thing. Salvation has not looked different from Old Testament to New Testament. We don't believe, right? Rahab doesn't believe without the Holy Spirit doing something in her heart. What changes in the New Testament is this new empowerment and this new perspective that I'm supposed to love other people and serve other people and pour into other people. It's the big change that you see from how Israel functioned in the Old Testament, right? They were supposed to be a light, but they weren't really a light. They were supposed to be involved in other nations and pointing them to God, and they weren't. To the New Testament, where you see the early church, I mean, it just goes, and it goes, and it goes, and it pours into each other, and it pours out the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do differently in the New Testament. And it's exactly what Jesus promises, that when he leaves and when the Holy Spirit comes, your life will spill out into the lives of others. Six points of application today in our notes. Don't mistake a lack of action by God as a lack of movement overall. Don't forget that the world is evil and sin needs to be addressed. Don't reject or abandon Jesus for silly reasons. Don't judge others for things you approve in yourself. Don't wait to believe because time is short and don't neglect to let your salvation spill over into others. Application, which of these points needs the most attention in your life this week? Are there circumstances you are waiting on God to move in that you need to exercise patience and trust? You may need to check in your own spirit this week because you've been operating on your timetable and not his and you've grown frustrated and discontent because he's not acting and you're questioning whether he's even moving. We need to wait on God, exercise patience and trust and know that he's always moving even when he's not acting in ways that we would want. Are there temptations that you're yielding to where you need to remind yourself about the evil of it? Joshua Harris didn't wake up one day and decide not to be a Christian anymore. That was things that he kept giving himself to over and over and over and over again over the course of the past four or five years. Cut it off now before four or five years pass and you're posting crazy things on social media. Are there any doubts regarding Christianity that need to be addressed and affirmed before they progress further? It's not uncommon for Christians to have some minor, weird detail or passage thrown at them that they've never heard before. They've never seen that addressed before by their pastor and it starts to rock their faith. They're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do with that. Right, like I've never heard that before. Maybe that means I should abandon Christianity altogether because I don't know what to do with that. Man, don't let some weird minor detail that you read about on the internet cause you to doubt everything that you've heard your whole life. If there's ever any doubts that start to spring up in your faith, man, address those, seek counsel from people who can help lead you to clarification about something like that? Are there actions of others that are currently frustrating you that need to be forgiven in them and addressed in yourself because you're doing them as well? 
Take some time this week and just pause when you get frustrated and ask yourself, am I frustrated about something that I do to other people too? Odds are probably so. So you probably need to be more quick to forgive those that are frustrating you and more intentional to correct yourself because there are probably other people that are trying to forgive you. Are you a believer or do you need to repent and believe today? Man, always a good reminder for us to step back and to pause and to test our faith. And then lastly, are you faithfully spilling your life into the lives of others so that you are encouraging and spurring people on in your life? We're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks in regards to our church. But man, we have a responsibility to spill over into the lives of other people through our hospitality, through our accountability, through our discipleship opportunities. We have a responsibility to spill out into the lives of others Are you doing that faithfully? Encourage you to kind of think through these questions. Pick one that you feel like needs to be targeted by you this week and seek to address it. Our family worship questions for this week. What are some ways that we might experience hatred from the world in our culture because we are Christians? Prepare your kids for what may be coming as they communicate their faith to others in school. Number two, what are some actions that we are quick to judge in others' lives? that we are oftentimes guilty of ourselves. I see this all the time in my own kids, um, probably because they're modeling what they see in in me, that um, they're very quick to judge each other for things that they do to each other. Um, Good chance for us to pause and, and ask ourselves those questions as well. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we praise you and thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the all satisfying water. And God, as we experience satisfaction from you in our salvation, I pray that that satisfaction would spill over into the ways that we interact with people around us. God, help us to be an encouragement. Help us to spur other believers on in their faith. Help us to be intentional with our time this week to encourage others. God, help us to realize, too, that spilling over into others' lives means sometimes addressing sin and bringing the hope of forgiveness. Help us to be faithful to do that as well. God, we pray for Joshua Harris this morning for whatever needs to happen in his life to to bring him to a point where he sees you once again as the Christ, as the Messiah. Father, if he is deceived by sin and yet remains a child of yours, I pray that you would bring him to conviction, that you would bring individuals into his life to remind him of the gospel. God, if he's been masking as a believer for all these years and has grown uh, discontent with religion as he has seen it, God, I pray that you would bring the gospel to him in a fresh way that he's never considered and that you would bring him to repentance and faith in you. Either way, God, I pray that he would come to the realization that Peter did, that there's nowhere else to go, that there's nothing in this world that offers what you offer. So God, I pray that whatever minor details are holding him up, that you would allow him to see that the improbable is worth embracing, that you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. For all of us, Father, I pray that we would be submitted to just a a resolve to trust you and your timetables. God, help us to lay aside our purposes and our own times, that we would trust you and your goodness. 
Help us this week. Help us to self-examine this week and help us to make progress in our faith. Help us to believe you more next week than we did coming into this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.